Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. This is episode 5, where we talk about legendary creatures. Legendary rules are a subject of a lot of disagreement in the magic community, but we make our case about why legendary matters not only from a flavor standpoint, but also from a common sense and gameplay standpoint. We talk about how legends give us a chance to have role models in the game, something to aspire to, characters that we want to root for, and we talk about how that plays into celebrity culture, hero worship, and role models in general in our own lives. Unfortunately, simply due to the timing of the recording, we weren't able to get Alex on this show, but he will be back for the next episode. Without any further ado, here's the episode. Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to episode... I think this is going to be six. This is my, This might be six. We're not exactly sure when this is going to come out. It's going to come out in the month of July 2018 at some point. So you'll you'll be listening to us in the not-too-distant future. Uh, I'm your host, Joe Redeman. You can find me on Twitter at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D, Horn. And uh, today we're having the discussion about Legendary. Uh, legendary is a specific part of Magic the Gathering, and uh, we're going to dig into what that means for Vorthos. Is the flavor of Legendary. We're going to be talking about the uh, implications for gameplay and how you can understand that as a Vorthos player. We're going to be talking about how that relates to the real world in terms of you know hero worship, celebrity culture, you know our own role models as well. And so now I'm going to throw the proverbial uh, car keys over to you, uh, my co-host, and ask you who was your first role model. Hi, everybody. This is Hobbs. You can find me at HobbsQ on Twitter. For my role model, my first role model, it's kind of one of those, you know, it's going to sound cheesy, but it's my dad. Um, because uh, I know. So my father is the ultimate blue-collar worker. He dropped out of high school to work full-time in the oil fields at age 16. He never finished high school. He never went to college. He worked 80 plus hours a week at times when the oil fields were booming with this idea of kind of he wanted me to not have a part of that life um he did not want me ever to be in the oil fields or be in that type of world he wanted me going to school he wanted me to get an education and he instilled with me though some of those blue collar kind of attributes of the working hard being willing to do what you need to do in order to get your goals and so that's just always been my easy answer that's awesome yeah and i i there are a couple of key points of that that i want to come back to when we get more into the discussion about role models uh and what they mean for me i actually go a little bit to the other uh the other place that people think about when they go to role models Uh, for a lot of us our first role models our parents for me it was um athlete it was it was you know a sports player i'm a huge uh sports nerd as well as a a games nerd um but i grew up a milwaukee brewers fan i still am a milwaukee brewers fan and uh as i was growing up the player that had dominated milwaukee brewers culture for a long time was robin yount and so robin yount the kid you know was the hero of the team when they made it to the world series the baseball championship um, he, you know, was a home, you know, grown. They they picked him in the draft themselves, you know, and so he stayed with the team his entire career. So it was that sort of like the things I learned for, about, you know, from him were sort of that dedication, loyalty. So the first thing that we want to talk about is 
sort of the history of the legend rule because legendary has changed in what it's meant, how it's functioned in the game for, uh, you know, over the course of the entirety of Magic. It's changed, I believe, four times is what we counted. I think we had three times, and the fourth is kind of the the future. Okay. Yeah, so we have three three changes. changes. Well, we have the the initial legend rule, uh, the first change, which we're using kind of, we used A.E. Marlene's article that is on Gathering Magic is kind of our jumping off point here. At A.E. Marlene on Twitter. Yep. And we use his article as jumping off to kind of look at the history. It's an interesting topic to come from, from both a gameplay standpoint and also from a lore standpoint. And on top of that, it's actually interesting because a lot of what happened, I think, with the legend rule and even changing of the legend rule really ties into the kind of the birth and the rise of EDH slash commander as a format. Um, Wizards started printing a lot more legends there started being a lot more support for legendary and it was around really around like the edh set i mean 2004 was kind of pretty early on and really people starting to play commander and it's starting and you had awkward situations with the original role which we'll get to in just a minute yeah and and so i believe if uh i just have to check this to make sure but i don't believe there were any legends prior to the expansion set legend no that was the first one yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and so there you know legends was the first iteration of this where where we start seeing these you know for lack of a better term these hero creatures coming Mm -hmm. into into the game um you know named people that you can identify with as cards we'd seen on previous sets Flavor text mentioned characters. You know, we had references to Urza and Mishra and Freilis and Jaya. Jaya and Caleb and Krug and all of these people that, you know, if you know the stories, the early stories, you know, they feature heavily in the flavor text of those stories. And that's really where magic story started being communicated was in flavor text. But we never got really anyone to identify with as a person until the Legends expansion. Um, and so, uh, Hobbs, do you want to go through that first iteration, I guess, of the Legend yeah. Rule and what it what it did for the game? So I actually started learning when under the original Legend Rule, um, which I will say as a new player was not very intuitive. So A.E. Marlene talks about the fact that it made sense actually from a flavor standpoint. Basically, you were bringing in this creature or this entity that was... A legend in their own right and because of that nobody else could play one so if you were the first one to land it nobody else could play that legend you you controlled it because you had brought it out so if somebody else try if they played one all that would happen was that one would be buried mm-hmm. or destroyed i guess so that was the world that i learned under and as a new magic player not really as interested at the flavor point at that point it was weird because I'm trying to learn all these rules, and then, oh, by the way, here's a subset of creatures that you... There could only be one out at a time, and if I played mine, you can't play yours. So, it, as a new player, it really was very confusing. And it seems, too, like when you have something that says legendary as a super type, or back in those days, it, it was a, a creature type legend, um, it feels like it should be a very powerful card that hits the battlefield and does something great. But I think, too, with that point in magic design, the legends were a lot more underpowered. They weren't they weren't highly, you know, pushed cost 
as a lot of them are today. Yeah. And so you have this this feel of, okay, well, I should be able to, you know, have a big impact on this game. Well, I mean, with Legend, what we got was these weird situations where you had these really highly costed, basically vanilla creatures that had this, the type with them. Right. Um, and the idea was that they were trying to give us a story, and that was the purpose of the set. But you had just things that did kind of nothing mm-hmm. that had it. Then you had creatures that really did hit the battlefield and could make huge differences. So that's where we get the Elder Dragon. That's where we get Angus McKenzie, which for that point was a bant creature that could fog every turn. Yeah. Um, which is huge. I mean, at that point in Magic, removal was not as good. I mean, he probably was easy to be killed. But still, if you don't kill that, you have to answer just being able to fog every single turn. So we had this weird spectrum of cards. Right. Um, and... From a game point standpoint, A. Marlene brings up some very classic examples of, I think the most being the famous Acroma situation in 2003, which he kind of talks about as the impetus for the world change on. But he gives an example of a pro tour where basically one person had played Acroma, even though it was not on the board the way it used to be, you couldn't reprint, I mean, you couldn't play out one later in the game. And so a player died basically with multiple copies of a very strong legend in their hand. Right. And that's sort of what I mean too about that whole, you should have... You should be able to have impact, and yet it was more like multiple copies of this thing in your deck are clogging it up. Yeah, yeah, running four of a legendary was a weird thing because multiples of it were really bad. Yeah. So that that is, um, again, we're going to sort of use AE's article here as as our reference point. That's what AE calls the rule of singularity. Only one of these creatures can be on the battlefield, and um, basically just luck of the draw locks your legends out of the game you know specifically like if you have an acroma one of the most powerful creatures in constructed at that time done you know you don't get you to play your acroma then rules for legends changed around 2004 um and that became what we now call uh the rule of removal what ae calls the rule of removal and that means that when a second version of the card uh comes into play both die so yeah this is the rule that i remember the best right and i and i believe that i keep thinking that i started playing earlier and i know i I know i played closer to 2000 but i don't think i ever knew the rule of singularity i I don't think i ever played sanctioned events back then and so i i don't think i ever knew that one but we'll we'll get into my playgroups experiences in a bit but the rule of removal essentially said uh you know essentially flavored it as another creature that's exactly the same coming into play uh is is almost like a time paradox it's almost like you going back in time you seeing yourself meeting yourself changing something and you know then all of a sudden both copies wink out of existence and you know the whole time space continuum is ruptured and so it fixes itself you know yeah versus the game just imploding right right right, because that would be really not fun yeah (laughs) (laughs) and so that's not that also was it was less flavorful there is a flavorful explanation for it but it was i think even less flavorful than the rule of singularity in that functionally playing another creature playing another acroma for instance became a free kill spell you know well and, i mean it became a very costly kill spell well but the thing was it in some ways it didn't and for me this is where i kind of started with edh actually was was taking advantage of this rule um, because I, when I started playing EDH, my first ever commander was Marike. And I, the, the point was, everybody had better collections than I did. And they played more expensive creatures and stuff. So what I would do was take advantage of this rule by playing clones. 
Um, so I was getting four mana removal spells in blue. I believe that that was kind of the, the joke about the abuse of that rule was really that you could get rid of something in blue for really cheap. Right, and so not only do you have this weird, uh, slightly less flavorful time paradox ex- explanation for the rule, you also now have this breaking of the color pie. And, and for me, I think this period of the legend rule is the singularly most anti, not even unvorthos, anti-vorthos. Like, you shatter the color pie with this thing. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard for me to, because I just use this so much to my advantage. Not that I'm a spike, but I just use this a lot to my advantage in the fact that, like, blue could clone stuff, and I loved playing blue. Yeah. But yeah, I mean... Well, and this rule came about around the same time that we also started getting Planeswalkers. This is this is a little bit of a tangent, but it does relate because Planeswalkers come into the legendary rule later on. Um, these Planeswalkers then were sort of flavored as not, not random separate entities or not people that you're summoning, but sort of... Uh, other planeswalkers that you've built allegiances with and you bring them in which is why they function with loyalty counters it's it's that you know they're an ally right they yeah. come in to help you in your yeah. fights in your duels um you know and and you tax them too much you know you know ask them for too much and they'll go away it does have that that interesting flavor where legendary changes over um planeswalkers come in and on top of that too uh you know back in that time and i believe that had been i believe this had been the rule um for the entirety of planeswalkers until recently you had planeswalker and its type like planeswalker jace was jace bellerin um planeswalker jace and you couldn't have only one planeswalker with Planeswalker Jace on the yeah. battlefield. They so, were functionally legendary. Even though they weren't considered legends by the creature type, they still operated basically under that legend rule, except we started getting different of the same Planeswalker pretty quickly. Right. So we go straight from... Uh, we go from Lorwyn, we go from Lorwyn into Alara, and then into Zendikar, and pretty soon now we have two versions of Jace. I mean, that's the most classic example. That's the one that A.E. Marlene mentions we've now had multiples of pretty much well the big planeswalkers we've had multiple copies of but you could then use a three mana jace to get rid of a four mana jace right essentially right and so again you have this weird kill spell and especially because at that time planeswalkers were a lot harder to remove that you know it just becomes this weird like it just goes so 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 far away from from Vorthos and good flavor in in my opinion, and I think you know AE's article does you know confirm some of that too. I don't, I don't know. Do you agree that that just if we're considering flavor and story, that just goes super sideways from it? It starts getting really weird, and then so we finally get the most recent update and the rule that we are operating under right now, which is this idea that you know what both players can have at least one of the same i can have a nor in the wary under my play and you can have a nor in the wary under your play and they're going to be running away every time they look at each other <laughs> but they're going to come back in and they're not going to kill each other they're not going to bomb just legend bomb as i mean it's basically what i used to call it so mm-hmm. they're not going to do that we both can play that creature and both of us can have copies now we neither of us can have two of the same so that still is in play but on opposite sides of the board we can And then we also mix in now the new Planeswalker variant where you can't have of the same name. Right. You can now have two Planeswalker Jaces, but you can't have 
two Jace Bellerins or two Jace the Mind Sculptors. Right. And on opposite sides of the board, we can each have a Jace the Mind Sculptor, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually has been played on by wizards, which is a, an interesting way for us to get into because the there was a Gideon, basically, that cared about carry, if you controlled a Gideon Planeswalker. So an emblem for the most recent Gideon was you can't lose the game if you control a Gideon. Right. So like now it, it, it really actually cares about you can have as many Gideons as you want of different types on the board, and it behooves you to do that. Right, right. So now we're at the opposite extreme of you don't get stuck with these in your hand as much. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. I, it does make for much better gameplay, that's for sure. Yes. What, as we get further and further along this timeline, the gameplay is becoming a lot more streamlined. I guess my question for you then, Hobbs, is is this more flavorful? Is this better flavor? Or have we gotten, as the gameplay has improved, has flavor declined? I mean, my initial gut instinct in some ways is yes. Um, you know, there, there is kind of, we're almost kind of trying to rationalize and ad hoc bring in, like we talked about recently, flavor is coming in and we're making flavor fit. So, we can do it. It may take some mental gymnastics. We can kind <laughs> of do this. Uh, I, I like this idea of maybe like we know that the planeswalkers when we when they're helping us, Balaren is not the same person as Jace the Mind Sculptor. They're from different time points within their timeline. So if we can if we're gonna go with this theory that we can have Jace the Mind Sculptor and Jace Balaren in our decks at the same time, we're pulling Jace's from different points along his stream, right? Okay, so. Sure. And that's weird. Right. I mean, we, we just talked about the legendary rule initially. We tried to talk about this time paradox. This is even worse. I mean, I literally, when I remember when this rule first started, my mindset was going to Doc Brown doing like a chalkboard, drawing lines and like everything going horribly wrong. Um, because we're creating really bad. I mean, by any version of time travel that I am aware of, Meeting yourself is considered to be a very bad thing. And yet, here we are. We're almost kind of, I guess, we could pull a Doctor Who rule here. We've had it where all the Doctors have interacted. And so for those of you who don't know, Doctor Who is a uh, British sci-fi show um, that features a um, an alien, a Gallifreyan um, Time Lord, who uh, his, his ability, his species ability is that they can regenerate a certain amount of times. I believe it's 13. They, it's 12 it, times yeah, they it, can regenerate, so it, they can have 13 lives. We have that, the time paradox, this, the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey rule, or the explanation, that I guess. Should be, I think that is the official name on Wizard site now. Is it really yeah. good? Excellent. Um, and so you, you have that sort of fitting explanation for this. Um, AE also forwards another one, which I, I think is another interesting one, especially to explain... Um, legendary creatures but not necessarily planeswalkers planeswalkers i think we can under you know we can sort of mentally do the gymnastics of they are powerful enough to bend time and space and all that even though they're not these days the other idea specifically for legendary creatures is that the a card different cards are different facets of their ability sets and so uh you know specifically uh, A.E. gives the example of Thalia Heretic Cathar and Thalia Guardian of Thraben, both of which are, are um, you know, about sort of limiting opponents and, and playing into the taxes or, or stacks 
um, strategies. It limits what your opponent's creatures can do or what the, what spells they can play. And so I, I think that's a cool explanation of, yeah, she's a more complicated person than just the abilities on one card. I think that makes some element of sense. Um, you know, I think, too, about when we've had creatures that have had color shifts over the course of a block. So what you're kind of saying is, like, Thalia is still Thalia. Multiple versions of her on the board at the same time are not multiple different Thalias on the board. There are multiple aspects of her persona. Right. So from a psychological standpoint here, we have the different facets of her personality. She's a 3D character. She's not a single aspect. I mean, she's not just one characteristic. She is a whole person. Right. And so we're getting it. Once again, I feel like we're we're forcing. We're having to back justify. Yeah. yeah, we're having to go back and justify. And I and I do. I don't think that makes it necessarily less valid. No. But I do think it is. It does put the the onus on us. It puts the responsibility on us as the players or the Vorthos, you know, people to figure out how it fits. Right. And, and fortunately, there are some of those pathways to that. Magic and wizards have left it open enough. For us to get there, yeah, but not considering Vorthos needs as much well, as the players. I actually think, in some ways, their gameplay changes are trying, in some ways, to allow for this. So let's go back to EDH because that that is the format that we know hinges com- Commander EDH hinges around a legendary creature, right? They didn't used to produce or print tons of legends. We have seen a humongous rise in the amount of legendary creatures that you can play. And they want people to be able to play them. And they want you to still have that storyline of your EDH deck is, or your commander deck has this commander or this general that you are sending out in kind of as your ally to deploy onto the field to protect. They, their gameplay changes actually allows for you to make your own story better when it comes to EDH. So I'll talk here just briefly about uh, our San Diego playgroup that I used to be a part of. So uh, we used to have a basic own multiverse for our EDH games. So we had a board where people had their decks written down and only one person in the playgroup was allowed to have a specific legend. So we took this even different from no two people could play the same deck at the same time theoretically, even if somebody wasn't there that night, I'm not sure that we allowed them to play. You could have a deck to play for against other people, but if you were in that play group, legends were owned, basically, by somebody. It was interesting in some ways because it made each new set kind of fascinating to see people start to fight about who was going to get which legend or make a deal. I even saw people, I'll give up an old legend that I own for this new one to you if there were two people that wanted it. But it made games... In some ways, it had that flavor aspect to just what was a pretty spiky commander group, I'll be honest. I mean, this was a combo-heavy 7-8 player games that would still end on turn 4. I mean, this was a pretty intense play group that also wanted to bring flavor in and did it this way. I, I love that idea, too, because that gives you the chance as a player to want to identify with a with a legendary creature or you know or a planeswalker i'm not sure how you guys handled those but you know you do have that that drive to you know whether even if it wasn't like oh i see some aspect of myself in this character you like it for some reason you want to play that character so it gives you you know it's it's almost like a, a fantasy sports team where where when you roster a player on your fantasy team 
I'm more often than not, I find myself wanting to watch those players' games or, you know, rooting for that player if I am watching that player's game. And so a little bit, you're rooting for, you know, uh, Squee in the story if you have Squee as your commander. Or, you know, you are rooting for Sisse to come into a later set, you know, because then maybe you'll get another chance to play with a new Sisse. Two, I just want to touch on on my original playgroup really quick before we move on. Um, Because I started playing around 2000, um, so this would have been the Rule of Singularity time. But I, like I said, I never played in sanctioned events. I we just played as a bunch of ten year olds, you know, throwing cards at each other, basically. But in this play group, we just, when it came to legendaries, we went with what felt right. And so for us, it wasn't. It, it was already this, um, this sense of you can't play more than one. We didn't know. I don't think we knew about the legendary rule, but we it, we knew it didn't make sense to have two Eladomris out on the battlefield at the same time. Because why would you do that? Why would there be two Eladomris? And so we went, we did sort of fit into that, um, into the rule of singularity. I think we naturally went with the rule of singularity, where, no, if I play an Eladomri, you can't play an Eladomri until he's gone. See, you know? So, yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it. And, and frankly, Magic can be a casual format, and if you guys decide you don't like the legendary rule the way it is right now, do it how you want. Play Singularity. You know, I have a friend who still refuses, actually the friend that I gave away a box of cards to when I went to college, he still refuses to play with 6th edition rules. With the 6th edition changes, he still plays with Mana Burn because of the flavor, because it makes sense. If you use too much energy, it'll overload your circuits. I'm still salty about Mana Burn too. And Mana don't Burn. ever get me into the tuck rule Oh gosh. when it comes to EDH. Sheldon. I still feel this way. You know, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting way, and it came into the game originally because of flavor. Wow, are we still talking about legends? We are. St- st- we're talking about magic, so that's at least good. At least we're on that. Um, so well, you talked about your play group and their own rules, and and what I liked is you mentioned do whatever you want. Right. You know, like if you have a play group, and that's how I feel about a lot of things. However, the risk of that is what we've seen people kind of asking about or questioning recently when it comes to the legendary rule. In particular, I think Saffron Olive started a discussion on Twitter about what if we just got rid of the legendary rule? We are now moving as far away from, in some ways, flavor as would be possible. I I think that we would get to the point where I'm not sure what our mental gymnastics are going to be if we were to do this from a flavor standpoint. And also from a gameplay standpoint, I don't really get it because it causes problems for certain formats um i can think of the top off my head death and taxes becomes a ridiculously good and better deck in legacy because if i can have multiple thalias out that are taxing each of your spells with an additional one to cast you are shutting down most combo decks to the point of they 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 almost become unplayable you know, that's the biggest example that I saw in that thread when it came out. But there are a lot more like that where, uh, you know, double Jace the Mind Sculptor in Miracles or the version of it that's still around. Um, we have kind of these situations where if you allow this for basically everything, you're going to be... The gameplay is going to change. And from a flavor perspective, I don't know where we go. This is not to, you know, talk down on anybody who supports the idea you know i know again you're trying to 
like saffron olive is is thinking mostly about gameplay and mostly about the confusion and and you know sort of the the baggage rules baggage and so again i understand that they're trying to do it for clarity but like you said hops it just it does take away it does take away from that that flavor part you know it it does it makes even less sense then that you have two aspects and you think about thalia you have two aspects of Thalia that are the same out. Well, it's not like she got super great at one of them. You know what I mean? That, that you could justify it maybe, but it it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, I don't know, she's just been in the gym doing bench presses. Like, and so she's got really great pecs now. That's it. Yep. You know? But, you know, like, whatever. She's been ignoring like she do, She's been skipping leg day or something. I mean, we all skip leg we day. We all skip leg day. Who doesn't? Uh, I mean, what's interesting is, too, we actually have Mark Rosewater responded when it came to this tweet about the fact that he's been actively trying to make this change for years and he is in the minority within R&D. Yeah, and I think that's a good thing that R&D as a whole doesn't really support it because to me that element of singular, you know, legend being a thing is is good. You know, it is good to have a little more open gameplay because that's what we do. We play the game you know for those of us that like to play magic we play a game and that's why it's enjoyable but i think that if you do do away with it entirely if you do away with legend rule entirely that starts making the flavor convoluted it starts stealing from peter to pay paul in a way we're already messy and this just is making it messier you mentioned getting started more to do with liking the heroes and being tied to the storyline and so for you that's not going to make any sense right you know, when you think about this, I, we, I'm going to sound like an old person and I haven't reached 30 yet. Um, but there is a big uh, culture, especially in America, but it seems like it's worldwide, uh, of this obsession with celebrity or hero worship or um, sort of this this infatuation with power or wealth or, you know, anybody who's who's held up on a pedestal, we, you know... It's hard to tell, is it, you know, chicken or the egg? Are they up on a pedestal because they have power and wealth, or do they have power and wealth because we put them on a pedestal? And and sometimes it, it's different ways. I think about, um, you know, for instance, the Kardashians. You know, they are wealthy because we're interested in them. Yeah. You know, that they're, I believe the, the father of the Kardashian sisters was a high-profile celebrity lawyer. Yeah, O.J. He was O.J. Simpson's yeah, one lawyer. of O.J.'s lawyers. That's right. And so um, he made a lot of money through that, and so it's not like they weren't well-off already. They amassed wealth prior, and then they became famous for being wealthy. Right. And then they became even more wealthy because they had the show The Kardashians, Keeping Up With The Kardashians. So if we're tying this into magic, they're basically the gate watch. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. And and we have that, we, we saw that recently where um, there was a lot of pushback to Wizards that people kept saying, like, this is fine and all, you know, that we're getting a lot of stories about the gate watch, but we want to see what other planeswalkers are doing. We we're getting to see fatigued. what other characters are doing. Yeah. yeah we're getting tired we of We need to know what Paris and Nicole are up to. Right. <laughs> we need to move on to a different celebrity to worship. And I don't, I mean, I we're, we're like, maybe, but I actually don't think that that is far off i mean it is kind of i mean i totally know what's going on with all these people who i've probably have only seen one episode or two of their shows ever but i still kind of have an idea of who they are and what's going on with them right and even um athletes you know where my other job is aside from teaching i write about football for a living uh, you know 
I know way more about these guys' personal lives than I do about some of my friends. Like, yeah, yeah. And I would say that, you know, within magic, there is room kind of for that. I mean, that was kind of the idea of the Avengers. I mean, the Gatewatch was that we wanted to have a, a through line of stories of characters that we cared about. Um, the characters that we could either identify with, and that's why we had aspects of them within, you know, across the board. So we had our, our original five that we kind of did, and the idea was that maybe people would identify with them, um, with something about them, whether it's already in the color of their color pie, something about their personality, their playability, but that people would identify with them and look up to them and kind of that celebrity of culture, I mean, that culture of celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what we find is you do get fatigued. You do get kind of burnt out on that. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that you, as we've come back this set to Dominaria, the plane where magic all started, this is the history set. So we're seeing a lot of the effects of cultures remembering icons. You know, you have, uh, you know, we mentioned O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson is in a, burned into American culture, American psyche, not for being one of the greatest running backs in football history, but for being a murderer. And, you know, we see, uh, you know, not exactly a parallel, but in um, in Dominaria, there is a card, I believe it's called Memorial to Folly, where it's a statue of Urza that's sunken in a swamp. And it's this, this reflection, not of Urza, the planeswalker, who, yeah, despite all of his flaws, did save Dominaria, his home plane, even though it took blowing up a whole continent to get there, even though it took, you know ruining an entire you know group of people's lives even though it took like sacrificing many more innocent civilians yeah urza's not great we do there they, we have an episode planned to talk about whether urza was moral or not that's a, yeah that's a, that's that but, that literally isn't what we, <laughs> that is but, the one we've been planning tying this back in then to hero worship and celebrity culture you know Whereas the Gatewatch sort of is our celebrity culture, our, our VH1s, you know, of of today in magic. The We see the statues of the Weatherlight crew and these bits of old story of the Weatherlight saga, of the Wrath saga, all of that on Dominaria, these relics. They are Homer's The Odyssey or the Iliad, where it's these pieces of, you know, it's not like celebrity culture or hero worship is new. It's it's not like this is a strictly American, uh, you know, phenomenon. We just, like most things, we do it bigger. And right, better. we do it bigger and better. Yep, um, and uh, and and we stick a cowboy hat in, on it and slather it in barbecue sauce. Um, and then elect it president. Right, absolutely. Ooh, too, too soon. soon. <laughs> All right, uh, but yeah, no. So we go back in you know in Dominaria. It's thousands of years that they go back to hero worship. In the real world, it's thousands of years we go back to hero worship. You know, Odysseus was the, like, he was Gerard. He led this crew against all sorts of disasters and dangers to come back and save, you know, save his homeland in Greece. And, you know, take back his, you know, take back his land and, and, you know, all this sort of stuff. He was a similar character to Gerard in that way. And so we do see a lot of that... A lot of those elements, uh, you know, reflected. But you know, well, and on top of that, what's nice about this from a flavor perspective here is we have characters meeting their legends in some way, um, mm-hmm. or at least meeting people that would be important. So, 
we bring back the members of the Weatherlight crew. We, I mean, I'm just thinking kind of that coming back and seeing people that may have been heroes. I guess Squee is still around. I mean, our favorite little goblin is still around, and this dude has seen history. I mean, he's 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 been there, yeah, and he's still around. Well, and I and I love too that you have. You know, we talked about role models at the top of the episode and how we learned lessons from our role models. For you, you know, you took a lot of work ethic from your dad, from watching your dad work and, and seeing how he, you know, shaped his life and, and helped provide for his family. You you took that into yourself and learned lessons for how you operate in the world. For me, I saw um, a lot of things to emulate from, from Robin Yount and, you know, wanted to be a lot like him and, and and had that desire to to just continually work and grind and be loyal and you know all that sort of stuff to people and um in the story we see that with Gideon and Teferi and I think that is one of the coolest things you know we talked a lot not we but in in the community we've talked a lot about Chandra and Jaya Chandra learns control from Jaya about how to control their firepower and you know how to be focused you know still use the rage still use the passion but focus it. Um, whereas Gideon, I think, has one of the most interesting parts of this because he talks to Teferi, who also caused a lot of pain to people that he cares the most about. But yeah, I think that's a cool thing too, is, is that learning from history. And Gideon, I don't think, knows about Teferi until he gets to Dominaria, but he starts to then see elements of himself, elements of what he can take and become, you know, how Teferi can be a role model for him. You know, we, you talked about that that um, restorative moments in you know for people who suffered trauma. Talking to Teferi and seeing how he's come to cope with his past is is a really great moment for Gideon. He learns that, and and Teferi it becomes that that hero, but in a very personal way. Or maybe just a psychologist. Or maybe yeah yeah yeah. I'm basically Teferi, is what I just heard in that whole conversation. <laughs> Taking it back out into magic, a lot of times we see a split, or we hear about a split at least, between old players and new players. Things were better back in the day. Things were, you know, um, you know, when we had mana burn, it was better. When we had, you know, the rule of singularity, it was better. Um, you know, you kids and your newfangled creatures that matter in combat, it was better back when they didn't. But this sort of gives us that you know, a little bit of that modeling of behavior. We talk about that a lot in education, you know, is modeling behaviors and modeling lessons for students so they can see what it looks like so they have something to, to cling on to as they do it because it's, it's on, you know, different experience. It can be fearful for them. Um, we see maybe how older players can be not gatekeepers, but guardians of, of a, a past, of a lore, and and stores of knowledge to bring new players in and say this is what it used to be like and now it's different not better not worse just different different right i mean it, it's it's the game has evolved right and we can evolve with it or not we have that choice yeah um i'm choosing to evolve with it yeah personally ditto yeah and i and that's you know and you can have i think that's again one of the beautiful things about magic play groups about casual play groups is you can define the rules and as a player, if your playgroup decides something, you can play with them or you don't have to. Right. You know, you, a store that you like going to all of a sudden stops putting on the event you like going to, you don't have to go to that store and play the new events anymore. Go find your, your event or stay and play the new ones and adapt. It's it's up to you. Um, 
and so I, I like that I like that aspect that of the the change the the adaptability and how we see the history but how we move forward with the history. So I thought I was promised that this cast was basically going to become grumpy old men, and now I'm really disappointed. So kind of tying this up as we're coming towards the end of our cast, uh, I think that this has been a great discussion today. So I want to leave with kind of your favorite legend, or just give me a legend from Magic that is important to you and and a little reason why. I, I talked about it at the top of the show, um, and that's why I'm kind of coming back to it, which is Angus McKenzie. Uh, part of this is, if you've never played with Angus McKenzie, I wouldn't blame you. It's, a, it's really easy to play with on MTGO, because it's like 10 cents. But it's from Legend, so in Cardboard Magic, that means it's probably worth like $500, and I don't even know it. But, but I, the artwork on that card literally looks like Tim the Enchanter from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I had the opportunity at GP Vegas. I met Brian Wackwitz, who did the original art for that. And it turns out he had been watching Holy Grail when he had gotten the commission from Wizards to do this Angus McKenzie, to do this creature. So it, it really was actually modeled off of Tim the Enchanter. And I took that to make a Tim the Enchantress or Tim the Enchanter EDH deck that's enchantments and enchantresses uh, being led by Tim. Tim the Enchantress Which, is a really good name. <laughs> but it's really funny, too, yeah. in some ways, because if you say Tim and Magic, people think of Prodigal Sorcerer and its tapping ability to do one damage, and I've always struggled with that. Yeah, so I've got I've got two that I'm really interested in because, I mean, part of it was they were the sets that came out right when I started playing, um, but they, they're fascinating creatures to me because of the story. And, and, again, because I'm a story person, I love the arc that these characters take or or don't take um the first one is kamal who's the hero of the odyssey block and the onslaught block because kamal uh starts off as a mono red barbarian and over the course of the odyssey and onslaught blocks we see how he transforms when he's confronted with power that he doesn't understand when he's confronted with the marari and all of these these things that he doesn't know how to handle he changes he adapts and he becomes a druid and a protector of the crows and forest the thing is is that you know he adapts and he does things differently as a result of that and so i thought his character arc was fantastic that was one of the coolest things ever to see a mono red character become mono green and a druid that was super cool but another character to me that was fascinating because he didn't because he chose this is i love characters that interact with the story basically that not just interact with the story that's happening around them but interact with story on a higher level it's almost like they're very aware that the fourth wall is there and they negotiate with it chainer in the same odyssey block is one is my other favorite character and he's a black mage who uses essentially other people's horrors and nightmares and his own fears and horrors and nightmares as the beasts that he summons he's he's basically a reflection of you the player he summons beasts into play and uses those and um, turns them into nightmares and turns them into nightmare horrors yeah. yes and um and so it's basically it's it's nightmares come to life is his ability yeah and um and i find it fascinating because a little bit it was tragic because that those creatures lived inside of his psyche those creatures lived inside of his mind he was that you know sort of tortured of a soul um and you know eventually that's what undid him when he had the power of the marari literally his mind flayed itself but what i 
I thought was the most fascinating is he could have rejected the power. He could have walked away from it. He could have done the same thing because he was very good friends with Kamal and Kamal was, you know, trying to convince him, leave this, let's go, you know, or let me take it and let's let's get out of here. And he essentially he did the look at it, look at Kamal and go, no, I think this is what I have to do. I think this is where the story is taking me. Yeah, that's I think that's a good place to wrap it up. That's our show. Thank you all for listening to this episode. You can find Joe on Twitter at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. You can find Hobbs Q on Twitter at Hobbs Q. You can find Alex on Twitter at Alexander New M. You can find the show at Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter, or you can email us any questions, comments, or concerns to goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening on iTunes, or Google Play, please consider giving us a rating and a review. That helps us get the word out to other people that the show is even happening. The more people we can reach, the more people can join this community that we're hoping to begin and and hoping to foster. In addition, the guys will be at GP Minneapolis at the end of July, July 27th through 29th. There will be events going on all over the place, so follow the Twitter accounts and they'll let you know where things are happening. Finally, at the end of this episode, we have a brief giveaway notice. So stay tuned here after this break, and we'll get right back into it. Good evening. We had the mindset of we were kind of closing in um, on Friday to almost 100 followers, which I, I am just really impressed by the response we've had. And so I decided that we should give something away. And we've decided as a cast that we're going to continue to give stuff away, um, at least up until the first thousand listeners or the first thousand followers on Twitter. Every hundred, we will be doing a drawing for something. We don't know what everything's going to be yet. Now, this is the ensnaring bridge with the amazing Titus Luntner art, which if you haven't seen, was in the um, 25th anniversary set. It is beautiful and it's a great card. And the winner is, oh man, it's Ryan Sanio from Minneapolis. He's uh, from Hipsters MTG. Actually, he writes for Hipsters of the Coast. Um, and our second winner is Ratgos Goblins at RatgosGoblins.com, which I guess is a very appropriate one to win the second card. So what we will do at this point is we will give uh, Ryan Sanio first pick at which of the ones he wants, and then we will pass on the other card to Rack Ghost Goblins. So both of you, if you could DM us and just let us know your contact information and whether or not you would like your card signed. Thank you, guys, and we will be moving on soon to our second giveaway as we are already closing in on 200 followers. And again, if you want another chance to win something... Start telling your friends about us. Word of mouth is the best way to pass around the knowledge that we exist. So go out there, retweet episodes, forcibly grab your friends' podcast apps and subscribe them to our show. And the more and more people that you get to follow us on Twitter, the more and more giveaways there are going to be. Thanks for listening, Podwalkers. We'll talk to you again soon.